I've got a great title for my talk today. You'll be pleased to know. I'm not going to make you guess it. The title is this, Jesus is Coming Back. Oh, yes. A raise a hallelujah and all that. We're in the middle of a series in the Apostles' Creed, and I'm continuing it today. For those of you who haven't been here before, the Apostles' Creed was written in the 300s, and it's, a, it's really a brilliant summary of the Christian faith. Back, way back then, in the 300s, they used to use it almost as a baptism class, that they'd go through and be, these are the key things of the faith that you need to know. And so the phrase that we use here in the vineyard is, we call it, the main and the plain. It's like when somebody comes up to me and they're like, what, what do you believe? What's it all about? Then this would be a really great starting point. So the bit I'm going to be looking at today is not that light. Just as a warning. Today I'm looking at this part. It says, he ascended into heaven, talking about Jesus, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So I'm going to give you a little outline of my talk as a spoiler. I don't normally do this. But I want you to see where we're going. The ch ch I can't say that word. Trajectory. Trajectory. There we go. Trajectory. Firstly, Jesus rules and reigns. Amen. Secondly, the second coming. I'm not sure you're going to amen the third one. Third third one, the day of judgment. So, as you can see, this talk gets increasingly more intense as I go through it. Now, the truth is, there might well be subjects that you have not thought very much about in your faith. And I'm aware that today, for some of you, could be a bit like me dropping a bomb in the room. That questions will arise and do you know what? In this church, we do not think that questions are a bad thing. We think it is a good thing to be a questioning person, and that is absolutely fine. And so questions might well arise for you, and, and that is good. Now, my job is not to make you feel comfortable this evening. My job is to preach the scripture in all of its fullness. And if I'm honest, the subject that I'm talking on today is not a subject that I talk about week in, week out. But as the creed highlights, the things that I'm talking about today are of utmost importance. They are of first order importance. And so, you might not have thought, for instance, much about what happens when you die, or what is it that we hope for. And so, those are some of the things that I'm going to be looking at today. Now, in each generation of the church, across the world, we have different challenges to contend with. Every generation has different things. In our day, my view would be that it's the gradual watering down of our faith and beliefs would be one of the strongest things that we encounter. And the pressure is to look exactly the same as the culture that we live in. And that's a real danger for the church. I believe that the church is called to be distinctive. You know, it talks in the scriptures about saltiness. And I believe that we're meant to look different. I believe that if the church looks identical to culture, then we've got a problem. 
And this is something that I looked at in my truth series, and you might want to go back and look at that as well. But if we're not careful as the church, we could lose our distinctiveness and the core and power of our faith. Jesus was and is more than just a good man with some moral teaching, as our culture would like to say. Some people are like, oh, I love what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And you turn around and you're like, have you actually read the Sermon on the Mount? It's pretty challenging stuff. He is saviour, restorer, and judge. It's all of those things. And as followers of Jesus, we have a story and scriptures that have not changed. God's great story in which we are living has this future dimension that's driving, that we're driving towards. And it's not just the life that we're living now, but it's the future hope. If you went back 50 years ago within our culture, it would have all been focused on where are you going? Nowadays, often within our faith, it's all focused on the now. And so actually for me to be talking about the future is a bit of a paradigm shift for some people because they're like, oh wow, I hadn't really thought so much further about the story and when we're going. So God has made it clear that Jesus is going to come back in glory. He firstly came in humility, that he came to earth, he gave up his divinity and he came to earth. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And the image that I left you with was this picture of Jesus on the cross, his hands nailed to the cross. And in it, he was saying, this is how much I love you. Now, when Jesus ascended back into heaven after the resurrection, it says this in Acts 1 verse 10 and 11. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So to be honest, the ascension has struck many people as strange that some have written it off as just being a bit of mythology, uh, Jesus flying back up to heaven, which was supposedly only a few hundred meters above the clouds. Not sure that's true. But ascension is more than Jesus's return trip to heaven. The, the ascension tells us something about the continuing work of Jesus in the world. I don't know about 15 years ago, there was a bit of a craze in the Christian world. Some of you are, who are slightly older might remember this. The, there were these little bands, WWJD, that kind of, these little wristbands that went around your wrist. And what they stood for is, what would Jesus do? Now, I think that was quite helpful. To me, it would be better if it was, what would Jesus do if he were me? That would actually be better, but that would be W-W-J-D-I-H-W-M. And it's just not that catchy. Because of the ascension, I think we need to actually be asking a different question. So that was what would Jesus do? I think a better question is this. What is Jesus doing? W-I-J-D. What is Jesus doing? And what do I mean by that? I mean, where is Jesus moving? What is he doing? As Christians, as followers of Jesus, that is really our mandate, to see what the Lord is doing and to follow as hard after it as we can. W-I-J-D. So in whatever mysterious way that Jesus ascended into heaven, in the same mysterious way, he's going to return to reign over the earth and to consummate his kingdom. And so this is where I move on to the second bit, which is really the second coming. And I've called this part the return of the king. 
which some of you will be familiar with. But can you imagine a big, fat, ancient Jewish wedding? That's what I want you to think about for, for a moment. Some of you are like, no, I can't imagine that at all. But according to several sources, it went something like this. After a formal engagement, it'd be up to a year or more that a bride had to wait for her future husband and his friends to come and formally fetch her for the wedding ceremony. So they were, they were waiting, she was waiting. As the wedding approached, the bride with her friends and family would wait in anticipation for the, for the evening when the bridegroom's party would turn up. So that, are they going to turn up? When are they going to turn up? They would then take the bride to the groom's house and the bride would be carried from her father's house to the bridegroom's house in a carriage while people played musical instruments, they sang, there was a bit of a procession going, sorry, I'm struggling with my language, procession, some difficult words, glow of torches and lamps. And so it would have been quite a sight to watch this going on. The bridegroom would receive the bride into his house there would be a reading of the marriage vows, a blessing would be prayed, and then the couple would consummate the marriage. Then the party really began. They used to do a week of feasting and merriment. They really knew how to party. I was thinking about this the other day because a number of years ago, I had 14 invites to weddings in one year. So I was sitting there going, wow, that would be 14 weeks of partying. I think we just got it wrong. But you might be at this point wondering what on earth has this got to do with Jesus' second coming? Well, the return of Jesus is likened to a bridegroom coming to fetch his bride and to take her to her new home, followed by a massive wedding feast. That is the picture that we are given. Listen to the parable of the unprepared virgins, Matthew 25, 1 to 13. It says this, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. You see, they didn't know exactly when they were going to come. This is the point I was making. They're waiting in anticipation. When are they going to come? At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. The parable is just a warning for people to be ready for the return of Jesus. While not knowing the hour of his return, they must make sure that the oil lamps of their faith are fully lit so that they don't miss the return of the bridegroom for the bride. In the book of Revelation, we see a description of his return. It says this, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. So again and again, my point is this. There are metaphors, there are images of this is what it's like, is that Jesus is coming back for his bride. 
He is the bridegroom, and one day he is going to come back. He talks further on in the scriptures, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. That's exactly what's going on. A wedding feast is such a poignant and powerful image for Jesus' return because it conveys notions of, of celebration and consummation as well as feasting and family and fellowship, lots of Fs, all rolled into one. But whatever we might say about the return of Jesus, and we could say a lot, the importance of being ready is the key thing, readiness. That is the blessed hope that the second coming sets before us. Now, what I want to take a moment to do is I want to talk about what the second coming is about, what it means, and how we're to live in light of it. What's it about? The return of Jesus really, 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 really matters. It really matters. I know some people can get a little bit obsessed about it. And so what happens is, because some people get obsessed about it, we're like, oh, I don't want to talk about it. So the people that would be a bit obsessed about it would start looking very, very literally into the book of Revelation. And they would start working out the dates and the time and the hour. And they would start speculating about exactly when Jesus is going to come. And there have been many, many occasions over history where that has happened. And people have been like, be prepared because Jesus is coming back tomorrow at 3.15 a.m. And so people prepare and then it hasn't happened. So, well, the point is it hasn't happened yet. But even so, we cannot afford to just gloss over this part of our faith. While Paul would not want his churches to become end-time maniacs, it's like, oh, when's it coming? He often encourages them not to be ignorant about the final things either. That is because the ending of the story matters. The ending of the story matters. It's the end of the ending of the story that tells you what the story was really always about. So I'm a big Star Wars lover, and I am having a brilliant time at the moment because my daughter's 10, and I'm getting to watch every single one of my favorite films with her. And because she's 10, she's just very enthusiastic about whatever it is. So next Saturday, I'm going to be doing the next part of our Star Wars adventure with Chinese. Awesome. But we learn from the ending of The Return of the Jedi that the original Star Wars trilogy, the only one, was, no, it's not true, was really about the redemption of Anakin Skywalker. That's what it was about. We learn from the ending of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that the story isn't just about three annoying English children. In a magical world, it's like, wow, they're irritating in the films. Not so much in the books. Sorry, side point. The book is about Aslan bringing liberation to Narnia and putting humans to watch over it. That's what the story's about. What the second coming tells us is that the end, the end as God intends it, is about God bringing his justice and his peace to earth. So those two things, justice and peace. God's story, according to the gospel, requires a, a final divine act to bring a rebellious world into order and to put it under the power of our heavenly king. This is why it's about the return of the king. He's coming back in majesty. He's coming back in glory. That's the picture. We are waiting for the final chapter. The glorious return of Jesus to establish his kingdom fully and finally. It is the moment when, as N.T. Wright, who's a scholar, likes to remind us, he will put the world to rights. 
That's what's going to happen. The world will be made right. Jesus is not coming back to be mean to a group of innocent agnostics. That's not the picture. Rather, he is coming to bring heavenly justice to a world that is submerged in mess and fear and pain. All of these things. That is why the Apostles' Creed affirms he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus returns to save his people, to rule in righteousness, and to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is Lord, and at his return, he will make his lordship fully known. I don't think any of us will be in doubt when Jesus returns in glory. It's like, it's going to be magnificent, the king of heaven and earth. Therefore, the return of Jesus is not just a mere afterthought. It's not like, oh, by the way, the return of Jesus is coming back. I forgot to tell you. Or an appendix that we put right down the bottom. It is absolutely central to our faith. It's the vital final act of our hope. That's why it was put in the creeds. Because it's so part and parcel of what it means to believe in God and to hope in Jesus. It is the main and the plain. The ending, the culmination of the story, the good news. The incredible news. In John's Gospel, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. In Thessalonians 4, it says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Paul wrote to the Philippians, we eagerly await a saviour from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will look like his glorious body. Did you know that you're going to get a new body? Hallelujah. I am getting more and more excited about that. Some of you are sitting there going, I pretty much love my body. I came back from the hairdressers yesterday my wife just looked at me and she was like, that is not a good cut. <laughs> I was like, that is brutal. <laughs> She's like, they could have kept it a bit longer on top. <sighs> the problem was she was right. When the guy came up to me, he was training and I thought, oh yeah, go on. How far wrong can you go? Anyway. The point that I'm making is I'm looking forward to my heavenly body. More actually, my heavenly hair. I mean, there's a picture, isn't it? Can you imagine heavenly hair? There is a deeply practical side to our future hope for Christ's return. But how we act in the present is deeply impacted by what we think of the future. So what we think out here impacts how we live. What we think about evangelism, what we think about justice, our world, relationships, the church, ethics, all of this is based on what God has done and yet will do for his people through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is coming back, coming back to the creed to judge the living and the dead. What he's saying is all of humanity will be judged. The day of judgment, again, not something I regularly speak about. So if this is your first time here, I do not speak about this every, day, every week. But having said that, it's important. 
This is definitely something that we do not talk about a lot in the West. However, the scriptures are very, very, very clear. Sometimes you get one or two verses about something. This is like a hammer blow. The reverse after verse after verse about this. And you know what? It's really important to let our understanding of Jesus come from the scriptures and not from the world around us. Jesus is saviour, restorer, and judge. Let me just show you. I'm going to give you a bit of Bible tonight because it speaks for itself. Jesus Christ will not just return to establish his kingdom, although he's absolutely going to do that, and we are excited about that. He will return to judge the world as well. So the Apostle Paul, was, when he was in Athens, he said this in Acts 17, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. To repent means to turn away, to walk, turn aside from the, your mess and your sin. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Every person who has ever lived, whether they are currently alive or have died throughout history, will be raised to face the Lord on the day of judgment. That's what the scriptures tell us. Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us, whether we believe in Jesus or not, whether we have surrendered our lives to him or not, we will all face the Lord one day. Romans 14, 10 to 13. And you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Revelation 22. Sorry, I... Um, Kind of just making the point, maybe I'm over making the point, but look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Now in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the Bible says we have been saved by grace. Week in, week out, that is the message on my lips. We have been saved by grace. We have been saved by grace. Jesus has done it all. It is a free gift. I've spoken about this so many times. This was what the Protestant Reformation was all about. The, the Catholic Church had been doing a number of things that were wrong. One of them was indulgences, for instance. So people, in order to have their sins forgiven, would go to a priest, and then the priest would charge them for the joy of, having, of confessing to that priest. And so it was like, uh, hang on, this is completely wrong. The Protestant Reformation came in, and at the heart of it, it, it was this, by grace alone, by grace alone, by grace alone. However... The pendulum can swing the other way completely. If we are not careful, we can end up in something called the hyper-grace movement. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? What I mean by this, the hyper-grace mo movement would be, if I'm saved by grace, it does not matter what I do now. It doesn't matter. I'm saved by grace. It's by grace by that I've been saved. I can do whatever I want. There are no consequences. It does not matter. Another way of putting it would be a guy called Bonhoeffer used the words cheap grace. It's like it costs Jesus everything, but it's cheap. So it's the same point. It's like it doesn't matter what I do. 
It's a sobering thought that one day we will stand, every single one of us, me, you, all the people that we know, we are going to stand in front of Jesus and we are going to give an account of our lives. The good things and the bad. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3 to 5, says this, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. God knows. He knows our motives. And this is the point that one day we will give an account of our life. And he's like, I know. I know what's in your heart. He knows why we do what we do. We are saved by grace, and then in response to this incredible grace, our actions follow. Can you see that? That we are changed. If we truly believe that he is who he says he is, then as a consequence, as as a response, it's like our lives change. The grace that saves us enables us to live as sons and daughters. Now, I want to delve very quickly into a slightly deeper point that some of you will love. And this, I'm really grateful to John Mark Comer for this particular point. But he talks about judgment. And he says, judgment for those who have given their lives to Jesus is past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. Let me just unwrap this for a moment. Let's start with the past. Your sin was judged, past tense. My sin was judged, past tense. Where? On the cross. At that moment in time, the punishment for our sins was put on Jesus. That's what God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. That was what I was talking about on the cross. Jesus took our sin. He took our mess. He took our pain. The Bible teaches that sin separates you from the living God here in this life. You do not have his spirit in you. You are not with right with God. And at death, you are separated from him forever in a place called hell. Heaven means you're with God. Hell means that you are not. Your punishment is over with if you're a follower of Jesus. That's what saviour means. So we sing all of these songs about Jesus being our saviour. But what is it he saved us from? He saved us from our sin and he saved us from our separation from God. That is what Jesus is saving us from. That is why the cross is so incredibly integral to our faith and we will never get past it. So your sin was judged and you are now right with God. So that's past, present. The Bible also says that your sin is being judged present tense. The cross does not save you from the consequences of your sin. The cross saves you from separation from God. At the cross, what happens is you are adopted into God's family. He's the king of the universe and we are co-heirs with him. We live under his roof. We eat from his table. He loves you, but as a loving father, he also disciplines us. Any good parent disciplines their children. It says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 32, it says this, Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So we are judged in the past and in the present and then in the future. Finally, future tense, we will be judged. At the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, the day of judgment, we will all stand before the living God. 
The prayer is that even though your sin is done, you are adopted into God's family. The hope is that on that day, that God is just making public in the sight of the whole universe what is already true of you. That you are his son or his daughter. So when, you know, we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, it's like, are you a son, of the daughter, a son or daughter of the king? Yes, I am. Prove it. Well, look at the way that I've lived. This is my life. Look at the way that I've lived. That's, that's how you know that I'm a son or daughter of the king. Not earning it, because that is what was done by Jesus, but showing that I really am a son or daughter. Nothing hidden, nothing to expose. Why? Because that's what it's talking about in that other passage when it says that the Lord will judge the motives of our hearts. So when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, well, I'm an open book. It's like, I'm adopted into his family. He, that's how he sees me, the righteousness of Christ upon me. So can you see how it's past, it's present, and it's future? In Revelation 22, verse 12, it says this, I will give to each person according to what they have done. And then, just as I come in to finish, there's this magnificent passage in Revelation 20, which is probably one of the foremost passages of where this whole teaching comes from. And it's, do you know what, I, I say magnificent, it's also a tough passage. It's a really tough passage. And when I said that questions will arise from what I'm talking on tonight, they will. Because we are dealing with really difficult stuff. It says this, verse 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. It's a picture of Jesus. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. Big passage. Tough passage. I've wrestled with these scriptures you should wrestle with these scriptures. It's important that each one of us does. Firstly, for ourselves, and also for the people that we love and care about. The place that I have landed is this. I want everybody to know Jesus. Right? That is a foundation point of my life. I will spend my life making him known. That's what I stand on. I don't know whose name is in the book of life. That's the next thing. I don't know. That's not my place to know. In the vineyard, we're something called centered set church. There's bounded set, there's centered set. Bounded set would be, it's very clear delineation of who's in and who's out. In centered set, what we have at the middle is we have Jesus, the beautiful image of Jesus. What we spend our life doing is pointing towards Jesus and saying, he's magnificent, follow him. That's what centered set looks like. So what we're looking for is the trajectory of people's lives to look, look more like him. So I don't know whose name's in the book of life. Do you know why? Because that is the Lord's to decide. It's up to him. I do not need to worry about that. My part is to point people towards Jesus. There's this 
amazing verse, Genesis 18:25, which has been really helpful for me. It says this, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? I trust him completely. He is good and just and loving. He is more just and loving and good than we could possibly imagine. Therefore, if he is all of those things, then I trust him to do what is right. And then I just want to finish by just talking about something called the restoration of all things. There is going to be a final judgment. Why? Because God is good. Behind the why, behind God's judgment, it is not simply just justice for sin, although that is important. But the biblical picture is a sense of justice which is restoring harmony, balance, equilibrium and shalom. God cannot stand injustice, but behind his anger at injustice is the heart to make the world right again. In the beginning, the world that God created was good. And then evil intruded into the world, into God's beautiful world. So we wake up every day to a mutiny on God's planet. The news shows us mess on every single level. There's mess everywhere. Injustice, pride, rebellion against God. This is not what God created. This is not the picture that God wanted. So... When Jesus comes back in majesty and glory, he is going to wipe all evil away from this earth and put the cosmos back together again. He's going to wipe out injustice. He is going to make everything new. He's going to bring everything back into equilibrium, everything back into shalom, right with God, right with one another, right with creation, right with ourselves. All of those things, that's what needs to happen. That Jesus needs to restore all things. That's the picture of where we're going. And we see it in Revelation 21. I'm going to finish with this. This is the picture that we're heading towards. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Again, we come back to where I started with that picture that Jesus is coming back for his bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That is the picture that we are moving towards. God is going to make everything new. That the pain and the brokenness that we all experience in this world will one day be gone. Because he's going to come back. It is really, really, really important that Jesus returns. Why don't we stand?